newspapermen meet such interesting people. They know the lowdown, now it can be told. I'll tell you quite reliably off the record about some charming people I have known. For I meet politicians and grafters by the score. Killers, plain and fancy, it's really quite a bore. Oh, newspapermen meet such interesting people. They wallow in corruption, crime and gore. Ting-a-ling-ling, city desk, pull the press, pull the press. Extra, extra, read all about it, it's a mess meets the test. Oh, newspapermen meet such interesting people. It's wonderful to represent the press. Media Project, your half hour of commentary and analysis that we are happy to bring you on media issues. I'm Rex Smith, editor-at-large of the Times Union. Very happy to be with you today with Dr. Alan Shartok, the CEO of Northeast Public Radio, and Judy Patrick, vice president of the New York Press Association, longtime editor of the Data Gazette, and investigative journalist Rosemary Romeo, who's professor of journalism at the University of Albany. So that is our crew, and we're going to try to do our best to bring you some interesting thoughts today. You doing all right, Dr. Shartok? Just want to check in and make sure you're well. Well, I'm working very, very, very hard. And, you know, I don't think anybody really appreciates just how hard. Work. <laughs> Probably true. We don't appreciate you at all. So, <laughs> and don't think and don't think I don't know it, dear friend. <laughs> all right. The topic we really want to start with here is a provocative piece written by journalist Hamilton Nolan that appeared in Columbia Journalism Review that put forth this notion. We are living through a historic technology-fueled shift in the balance of power between the media and its subjects and the subjects are winning. What he's writing about is that powerful people no longer think that they need the mainstream press, especially critical and ethical outlets, and that therefore the serious media, let's say, are losing power and the danger that that poses to democracy. So Alan, you're a political scientist by training. You have therefore a sort of a broader view of this. What would you say to this notion and what do you think the implications might be? Well, look, I tried to say this last week when we were talking, and I frankly had the um, crap beat out of me, you know, which was as newspapers fold, as they lose power, as electronic journalism takes over, this is the kind of result that you see. I think there may be something to it. I think the New York Times and the Washington Post are extremely important. And I think one of the reasons that they're so important, Rex, is that the local media the media all over the country says what the New York Times said this week or at a particular time or the Washington Post. So I think from that point of view, these major icons are terribly important. On the other hand, you know, I don't think that they have the kind of clout accepting the Times and the Post that they used to have. And we see it all the time. Rosemary? Well, I, I think the article points out that it goes even beyond what Alan says. It's the Washington Post and the New York Times that also is losing clout. And we see this in the Trump administration, where there have been, over the past few years, a series of devastating reports, immaculately sourced and filled with evidence about his corruption and incompetence. And nothing has happened to him. Scandals that would have felled earlier administrations just flow off of him. And we saw Trump himself. And actually, it goes back to Obama, who began saying, okay, now I don't want an interview with the New York Times. He could just blow them off because he could go directly to the people through Twitter and other social media. 
Trump extended that. He campaigned hugely through social media rather than the regular media. And so I think that there are, we have seen the evidences over years, but this article just says it out loud. They don't need us anymore. So how can you hold the public officials accountable if no one reads it, no one pays attention to it or gives it weight? We have lost a lot of power. And what it asks is, how do we get it back? The author says, I don't know, but we got to figure it out. I don't think you do get it back, you know, and I also think that when the Democrats take over, they're going to listen to the Washington Post and the New York Times a lot more than Trump did. You'll remember that Dick Nixon, of course, tried to prohibit the Washington Post from ever coming into the White House. But that was different in terms of just being angry at them than nobody paying attention to them. I think there's a big difference. You know, this is more than politicians, though. This is corporate America is also realizing that they don't need to deal with those pesky reporters that ask the hard questions. They're going straight to social media, Twitter and Facebook and Snapchat, if it's still around. And the other issue is that you're finding these new kinds of websites that are popping up with their own agendas that people can access information for free. In the meantime, here we are, we're charging, we have paywalls up and you have to, you know, there are hurdles you have to, to jump to get to the real news. And so in many ways, we're, we're killing ourselves. If you remember back in the day, there used to be an expression, you know, you don't argue with a guy who buys ink by the barrel. Well, I guess the idea of owning lots of barrels of ink is no longer germane to the discussion. Can I say one other thing? We saw a vivid demonstration in the past week of what this administration and other powerful people are watching this administration and what they think of the press. When 60 Minutes went into the White House and Leslie Stahl was asking difficult questions of the president, reasonable questions, but difficult about how he handled COVID-19, he got up and walked out and began slandering Leslie Stahl, the reporter, said he didn't like her attitude. And what he wanted instead was a DOJ investigation based on a New York Post article that the reporter refused to sign and that was completely unsourced other than references to documents, what kind of documents show that Hunter Biden and his father were involved in influence peddling and money laundering in Ukraine. They do not want journalism. They want easy roads to propaganda. This is difficult because when you have a publication of bad character, let's just put it that way, like the New York Post, which has some credibility with a certain audience, or like Fox News, that distorts data and information and presents it with all the trappings of journalism, makes it look like it's real. And a certain number of people, of course, will believe that. We all tend to believe what we want to believe and disregard the rest. It does dramatically influence what people believe. I mean, I've gotten a lot of email from readers since the New York Post's very dubious Hunter Biden story attacking the Times Union for not publishing this story. Uh, you know, the story has also not been published by any reputable news organization. But notwithstanding that, people are upset with us claiming that we are biased for not publishing material that isn't credible. So people believe what they want to believe, and increasingly, as Rosemary says, there are so many other places that look so credible that give people the impression that they're getting real news, and it makes serious news reporting suspect. I just want to jump on that for one second and say, Rex, for whatever it's worth, we've gotten the same letters at WAMC for the same reasons. Yeah. Yeah. And I may be bending over backwards to make this case, but my position is those readers and those listeners who want you to replicate that dubious story, they're looking for the credibility that you offer. 
And even when Steve Bannon or whoever or Rudy Giuliani wants to get dubious stories out there, they do seek a somewhat legitimate news source. They're not just putting it out on Twitter because they know it won't go anyplace. They need some credibility. So at least there's some modicum of interest in maintaining the credibility of established news organizations. I know it's a stretch, but at least it's something. Yeah, I I think it is a stretch. Bannon and Giuliani tried to peddle this to other more right-wing favorable but somewhat reputable news agencies. Even Fox would not take it. And so they put it out in the New York Post, which is not reputable but does have, as Rex says, a following. And the result is that there is a national discussion about this. It maybe doesn't have the impact of Hillary's emails, which obviously they were trying to copy. But it is a subject of discussion, and it is a battering ram against the credibility of the mainstream media. I thought the New York Times and the Washington Post handled it correctly by not covering the story so much as how the story came to be. It was the anatomy of the story. And they looked at all the dubious evidence and, you know, the ridiculous idea that Hunter Biden would leave a laptop across the country from where he leaves filled with child porn and other evidence of influence peddling. It's nuts. You know, the difficulty is that credibility in general has been diminished, that there is so little that we can trust. The background of the uh, sort of lending some credibility to this uh, really flawed New York Post uh, report, which, as Rosemary pointed out, the reporters on it took their bylines off because they were so concerned about the lack of credibility. But lending credence to it is a Senate committee report from the Republican-only senators on the Senate Mm -hmm. Finance and Homeland Security Committees, all about Hunter Biden, that is – highly suspect. When you look at the fine print of it, it's very flawed, but it is, again, using the official imprimatur of the United States Senate for non-credible information, for character assassination of Hunter Biden and his ties to Burisma. Again, my paper didn't make much of this. This is a partisan Senate report that didn't deserve to have the kind of attention that we once would have given an important Senate report on the presidential candidate's family. But even it did not go as far as the Hunter Biden report. Even the snakes in the Republican Senate did not say that Hunter Biden should be investigated. It looked bad, they said, but that's all they showed. So this report is extremely sinister. And it's definitely trying to use the media in the same way that Trump used media against Hillary Clinton in 2016. This time the press resisted, which I hope we get some credit for. But again, we're still under attack. Note the press is always, no matter what you do, you lose in the battle over credibility. I don't know how we come back from this. That, that I think, was uh, one of your questions, Rosemary. How do you regain confidence? How do you regain any authoritative voice when the media landscape is so splintered, when there's so many different forces, each representing a particular point of view, and when stuff that looks credible is not? You know, maybe these were good days when the barriers to entry into the media were high. That is, you had to be able to buy a press in order to have influence. The barrier to entry in the marketplace is low, as The Economist would say. Anybody can write a website and make it look good. Oh, oh, I know. If the Democrats take the Senate and they take the presidency and they maintain the House of Representatives, I think you're going to find an enhanced respect for the press that does not exist when this guy who calls the press the enemy of the people continues. 
So if Biden wins, I think it's pretty simple. You're going to find some, but not all, some prestige returning to the press. I think it won't be under attack the way it is now actively under Trump. But assaults on the power and the legitimacy of the press began under Obama. He did not talk. He did not respect it in the same way previous presidents had. This is technologically fueled, as the writer of the article we've been talking about points out. It's not just politics. It certainly hasn't helped. Assaults on the credibility of the press began under George Washington. Actually, (laughs) the wonderful book by Harold Holzer that uh, has recently been published about the presence and the press makes clear that there have been these kinds of battles all along. Well, from the Department of Self-Aggrandizement, I want to just say anybody who really wants to hear without reading this huge book can go to WAMC.org and see my interview with Harold Holzer on that very book, a very... Very good interview, not because I'm asking the question, but because he really takes a great deal of time to talk about all of this. Yes, or you could go to my interview with him for the New York Book Fair, uh, sponsored the New York State Writers Institute. Thank you, Alan. Where is that? Where, uh, where, that where, is that? where is that? Where is that? Where do we find that, Rex? New York State Writers Institute. That's, That's very good. good. Anyway, That's nice. Harold did a terrific book, and I'm really glad that we had an opportunity to uh, talk to him about it. And Harold resists saying that it's worse now than ever, though I certainly think it is. But, you know, objectively speaking, we had Abraham Lincoln having editors jailed when they published a material critical of his administration. We, of course, had the Alien Sedition Acts under John Adams before that. And there have been many instances where media that was even then less independent than it is now, but very partisan, was attacked by presidents and their ilk. But I think that the technology does change things. And the fact that... Oh, yeah. Yeah. There was never any alternative like there is now. If you're unhappy with the press, in the old days, you had to bite it or be out of the news entirely. And Trump does have that same thing. He loves the media. He loves to be in it even while he excoriates it. But that's different now. Elon Musk is the example. Judy, you refer to that business executive that's in this article. He does not even have a PR department anymore. One of the more troubling elements of this is the emergence of overtly partisan entities that are mimicking local media outlets. We know that as the loss of credibility of the national media has infected the capacity or the the authority, people still like their local news organizations. We're grateful for that, that we can still get some points across. And so if you have an investigative story in the Times Union or in the Gazette or in the Berkshire Eagle or something, it makes a difference in a local community. But many communities don't have access to fair local news because of the challenging economics of providing it. And so what has happened is that there are now partisans who have invested heavily in local news operations in almost every state, and they are putting out these websites that look in some ways to be straightforward news, but actually have very partisan political coverage. Again, this is basically duping the public, and it's a hard thing to imagine. I want to ask Rosemary a question if I can. You know, I watch Fox because I think it's important that you listen to what people you don't agree with have to say. And I read the New York Post every day. And I find, even though there's the Murdoch ownership of both, that Fox has nuances sometimes, which shows that at least they try to be a little fairer than the Post does. Am I imagining things? No, I would agree with that. And go back to the Hunter Biden story. Again, Fox passed on that story, as did the New York Times and the Washington Post, and for the exact same reasons, under sourcing, 
motivations of the sources who are bringing the story, Bannon and Giuliani, and just the fact that it's refuted by other information. So they said, no, we're not going to run this. And yet the Post apparently had no problems doing that, even over the objection of the reporters whose names uh, appear on the story. I'm not sure that the general public gets the idea of a reporter withholding a byline. They don't see it as anything important. But to a reporter, the byline is almost more important than your paycheck. You want your name on a front page story, especially one that the whole country is talking about. That those reporters said... Uh-uh. No, I don't trust this. We shouldn't be running this. Oh. Okay, so despite I'm, that. I'm sorry. I want to follow up on that because it's very interesting. I have seen articles in major papers which do not have bylines on them. Should we always assume that if there's no byline, there's a work action of some kind going on? Or an alternative is maybe the editors wrote the story and they're not anxious to have their own names as a byline. Well, I wouldn't assume anything from the lack of a byline. It could be that there was a typographic slip and a line got left out, <laughs> or these things happen. Or it could well, be, you know, on minor stories, lesser pieces when bylines go off. Or sometimes a story gets picked up in some newspapers. The style is to leave off bylines on wire stories, for example. Well, we're making but, it more complicated than it is, Rex. This is a yeah. front-page national story exactly. uh, in the New York Post with no byline. That's plainly like, whoa, something's weird here. Yeah, I haven't seen anything like that elsewhere in a long time. I can't think of no. an example. Have right. you ever seen stories in your own newspaper, Rex, in which there's no byline? No, I don't think so. I'm not aware of similar circumstances where we had any significant stories with no bylines. I don't believe so. Okay, so I think editors would confront a job action like that at the Cleveland Plain Dealer when I was there. Whenever we had negotiations and they weren't going our way, we would try to withhold our bylines because it made the paper look less credible, we mm. thought. Mm. And management would always respond to that. If you're a reputable editor, you want to know why the reporter objects to the story. And frequently, if you don't do that, you're burned. The very famous story about Jimmy's World in the Washington Post was about a nine-year-old drug addict, and it won a Pulitzer Prize and then was debunked as a complete made-up fraud. Reporters in the newsroom objected to that story. They said, this can't be right. It just does not make sense. Really think about this. The editors did not listen, ran the story, and, of course, it was one of the big embarrassments in the history of the Washington Post. The Post didn't have that problem. They were more interested in serving Bannon and Giuliani, i.e. Trump, than they were their own reporters. Okay, so so here we are, right? The media project, people rely on us to give them the poop. So here's the question. We have told them, look out for when bylines aren't there because sometimes they mean there's a work action going on. On the other hand, you know, I think I've seen a little bit of a laissez-faire thing. Sometimes it's, as Rex would say, it's for other reasons. Somebody got sloppy or it was a national story. We want to take the byline off. So what should our devotees be thinking about this discussion? It's very rare not to have a byline on a story, and I think the New York Post article did have a few bylines on it. It wasn't that there was no bylines on it. What we heard was follow-up news where another reporter said, no, I don't want my byline on that. So the average reader picking up that paper or looking at it online wouldn't have known that there was that byline controversy unless they did the follow-up coverage. So I think it's so rare not to have a byline on a significant story that it's not something you're really going to encounter. It is a media literacy issue. If you're trying to figure out how much stock to put in a story, one thing I would consider is, is there a byline? Whose byline is it? Is it someone I trust? And if there isn't, well, okay, maybe it's nothing, but it should be a question that you're asking if you're a close reader.
I think also that bylines can lend credibility to stories. I believe in the Times Union, for example, the byline of Brendan J. Lyons, who's now managing editor for investigations, is a byline that people trust because over the years, his work has had such credibility and reach and power. And so people, I think, will look at that byline and pay attention to a story because of the byline. And for people who are avid consumers of the news, a byline makes a difference. And similarly, you know, when you talk about Fox News, the presence of Chris Wallace, for example, on a story lends credibility to the story. Whereas when you use something that comes from just the Fox News primetime commentators, the entertainment sphere, that would be Laura Ingram and Hannity and the guy in the Tucker bow tie. Carlson. Thank you, Tucker Carlson, who is surely going to run for president of the United States. I think that, uh, however, detracts from the credibility when you put their work up alongside it. And they're not reporters. They're commentators. And so we, we ought to know that everything that they say comes with a bias, an intentional bias, because that's what their work is. So it's a hard thing to figure out sometimes, but the difficulty is now, as we were saying, that credibility can't be inferred by visuals. There's nothing that establishes a credible place from something that's not. The Ohio Star, for example, doesn't that sound like a great old-fashioned newspaper? The Ohio Star is run by political activists. The Keystone, which is in Pennsylvania... It has you know, nice stories about Pennsylvania's fall foliage, but it also has progressive political coverage from the nonprofit acronym. At least it discloses its funding. The Ohio Star, which is right-wing, does not even tell you where it comes from. It has stories that read like press releases from the Trump administration. So this kind of thing just makes it very hard for news consumers to know what they're getting. And the solution is, of course, to read widely, to look around, to get a lot of information from various sources so that you're a credible news consumer, right? There are more than 1,300 of these news sites across the country. Predominantly, they are Republican or conservative. And if you go to the bottom of the websites and look at the About section, they're often nonprofits. So you really, it's hard to tell what they are, but people are actually paying to have good news articles written about them. They do not follow standard journalistic practices, and there is no real way of distinguishing them from others, except, as Rex says, to watch. And if they have way too many positive articles extolling the virtues of the local politician, then be suspicious. We can't leave this week's show without talking about a couple of personalities in the news. One of those, of course... (laughs) uh, Oh, Uh, Jeffrey Tubin suspended from The New Yorker on leave from CNN after apparently inadvertently exposing himself during a Zoom call with colleagues. Maybe the difficulty, folks, let me put forth this proposition that we make too much of personalities in the news, that we spend too much time paying attention to people who are giving us information rather than to the information itself. Is that the root of the problem here? Look, when it happened, I said, okay, he's done. You can stick a fork in him. Uh, I always loved what he did on the air and his commentary. When Giuliani was caught this week fooling with his attire while lying down on a bed, apparently, he said he was just adjusting his underwear. You know, his hands weren't seen. So in some cases, you suffer the consequences. In some cases, you walk away scot-free. You know, they built Tubin up as a celebrity. I'm sure he's getting celebrity pay. So if you're an established celebrity, then you've got to be careful. And, you know, there's a hundred different things you could say about 
what Zoom calls are for and what business hours are for and what's appropriate and what's not appropriate. But the bottom line is, you know, he's got a big-time salary. He's a big-time celebrity. And I think the attention that's coming his way is well-deserved. But I'm sure he's pretty thankful that Ruby Giuliani stepped forth into the spotlight soon after his... <laughs> this is too late to help Tubin. The uh, Wall Street Journal came out with etiquettes for Zoom calls, you know. <laughs> Dogs and masturbation, I guess. You have to be more professional. And Rolling Stone came out with an interesting article about how men are jumping up to defend Tubin, that men are different than women, and this is just an urge, and it was, you know, no big deal. We all do it. He just got caught at it. Poor, poor Jeffrey Jubin. And he's hurt himself in the same way Congressman Weiner hurt himself and that Giuliani is. He's just done so many other things that this is just the latest in the gaff, so maybe we haven't seen the full impact of what it will do to him. But really, men, come on. Yeah, Stop come it. on. Keep it in your pants. <laughs> Yeah, that could be a message my gender might want to take into consideration pretty thoroughly. Uh, finally, uh, today, Rush Limbaugh. Rush Limbaugh, the most powerful voice on radio for many, many years, now says that his lung cancer is terminal. And the question is, we're looking toward the end of the Limbaugh era. He's been in national syndication for more than 30 years. Trump gave him the Presidential Medal of Freedom. What will follow the Rush Limbaugh show? Are we looking at a sea change in media after Rush? Anybody want to jump on that? Yes, I will. They'll find somebody else. Well, There's a flood of followers already. Michael Savage is there, for example. He's oh, my God. Yeah. Rabid and horrible. The damage he's done was to inspire many other followers, and his work is done. All right. With that point, we're going to have to let it go. <clears throat> that was Rosemary Armeo. Before that, we had Judy Patrick and Alan Shartok, and I'm Rex Smith. And we thank you all for joining us this week on The Media Project. And we thank our producer, David Gustina. And we hope you'll come back next week for The Media Project. It must have startled poor old Sadie's aunt. Ting-a-ling-a-ling, city desk. Hold the press, hold the press. Extra, extra, read all about it. It's a mess meets the test. Oh, newspaper men meet such interesting people. Like the richest girl who could not bake a cake. Ting-a-ling-ting-a-ling-a-ling-a-ling. Now, newspaper men are such interesting people. They used to work like hell just for romance. The Media Project is a production of WAMC Northeast Public Radio. Alan Shartok is CEO of WAMC, Professor Emeritus at the State University of New York, commentator, columnist, and author. Rex Smith is editor-at-large of the Times Union. Judy Patrick is the vice president for editorial development for the New York Press Association. And Rosemary Armeo is an investigative journalist and former chair of the Department of Journalism at the University at Albany. You can listen to or podcast The Media Project anytime at wamc.org or just down Download the WAMC app for your iPhone or Android at the Play Store today. Thanks for listening. Now, publishers of such interesting people, their policy is an acrobatic thing. They claim to represent the common people. It's funny, Wall Street never has complained. Ah, but publishers have worries, for publishers must go to working folks for readers and to big shots for their dough. Now publishers are such interesting people. It could be prostitution, I don't know. Ting-a-ling-a-ling, circulation, ting-a-ling-a-ling, advertising, get those readers, get that payoff. What a headache, what a mess. Oh, publishers are such interesting people. Let's give free cheers for freedom of the press.